0: Amen. Thank you, Debbie. Great job. Great thought. Appreciate our choir uh, singing for us tonight. Go ahead. If you would, get in your Bible, please, to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. If You don't have a Bible with you. There's one near you. It's got a hard black cover. We purposely keep our lights bright enough you can see your Bible. Acts chapter 15. We have been for some time in a Sunday night series Uh, actually about a year and a half at this point, on uh, doctrine. Uh, Some of the doctrines we've discussed, they're key doctrines. And those kinds of doctrines, we are actually commanded to earnestly contend for them. Uh, Other doctrines we've studied, they are really not something worth dying about. Some of them aren't even worth fighting about, but they do help our stability. They help our thinking to be sound. And that's what doctrine does for all of us. We've spent the last few Sunday nights talking about some practical applications of Bible doctrines and Bible principles. Last Sunday night, we talked about worship. Christ placed you and I in a time that could probably rightly be described as the worship wars. Uh, Thankfully, we have a reset button in the New Testament for anybody who wants to know the kind of worship that God seeks. After all, worship isn't about us. It's not about the music we like, or don't like for that matter. Worship is about what pleases God, and sadly, my experience has been most believers do not want the New Testament as a reset button when it comes to the prominence of preaching the Word, their focus on worship, making worship about music and repetitive lyrics, or tonight's subject. Thankfully, there have always been and always will be some believers who are looking for the New Testament to reset their thinking and practices. Last week, we talked about the fact that there is no focus on worship in the New Testament when believers assemble. We do worship when we assemble, uh, as well as any place we humbly and reverently bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. God didn't create us for worship. It's not our primary purpose. God created man to have a personal relationship with him. He created man to walk with him rather than bow down to him, though we do bow down willingly and gladly to our God. And though many things are done in the name of worship by believers of all sorts, we saw that Jesus clearly taught that God is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. God is not just looking for sincerity. He is not just looking for truth. God requires both for worship to be true worship. And it encouraged us to know that God is seeking believers who will offer him that. And any one of us can please God by coming and assembling with our heart and responding to truth as God makes us aware of his truth. Now, if you were reached by Bible Baptist Church you would not even notice that you never hear me use the word legalism in messages or personal conversation. If you came here from another church, uh, especially if it is one that changed what historical, biblical Christianity looks like and does, you may be shocked at the absence of the word legalism because you're used to hearing it regularly. I purposely don't use the word. Uh, I purposely don't use it because I believe it is, generally speaking, used wrongly, and I believe, generally speaking, as people use the word, it has the false appearance of biblical authority. See, at first glance, it seems spiritual and even biblical to criticize someone by calling them or calling some church a legalist. Uh, By the way, people who commonly use that term, they would describe this church as a legalist church, and they would describe me as a legalist. But if you press people uh, who use that word regularly for a definition of the dreaded legalist, their definitions would be all over the map. And for practical purpose the word legalism as it is commonly used basically is become something you call someone with a higher standard than they have to keep a biblical principle or command. Those who are more extreme on this issue to them a legalist is anyone who has any standard or line drawn in the Christian life or work of Christ. Is the way legalism commonly used from the Bible? Or is it from a lot of more recent books about the Bible? And though the word legalism and legalist are not in the Bible, there are biblical roots in the New Testament for being a true legalist. How does the New Testament define legalism? How does that apply to Christians in our culture? Does the New Testament have anything to say about the word legalist as it is commonly used today? Is it really legalism to have a standard of professionalism? Uh, By the way, at Bible Baptist Church, there's no standard to walk in our door. There's no standard to be a member here. But if you agree to be a teacher or sing or teach from this platform, uh, we ask that men wear dress pants and a tie and that ladies wear a knee-length skirt and a no-cleavage blouse. Is that legalism? They're good questions. Uh, listen, I, I understand. Very likely the family and friends of people who, who come here regularly, you have family and friends who call you a legalist. What is the legalism in the New Testament? It's a great question. Uh, like I say, uh, though unfortunately my experience has been, most people don't want the New Testament as a reset button. I don't believe in general people here are like that. That's why you're here. Uh, If you're able to stand, if you would stand, please, in honor of God's word. And obviously, Brother Jerry Stevens has taken over from Jim Adams, the quickest person in the congregation to stand. (laughs) Tell of my thought tonight is the legalism of the New Testament. The legalism of the New Testament. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It says, and certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren, and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phenis and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses." And apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. Thank you, might be seated. Paul and Barnabas, by this time, had been serving in the church of Antioch in Syria, uh, both together in the church and as missionaries for several years. The church in Antioch was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and it was started about 12 years prior to this point, when persecution in Jerusalem got so severe that the disciples, other than the apostles, were scattered around and spread the gospel. It was in Antioch where the disciples were first called Christian under the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. It was in the church of Antioch who was used by God to commission Barnabas and Paul to be the first missionaries, to take the first missionary journey, so to speak. Uh, by this time, Barnabas and Paul, they were back in Antioch after their first missionary journey. and we see in verse one that Jewish believers from Jerusalem, they came down to Antioch and they taught false doctrine. Verse one, certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, "Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved." Listen, it is false doctrine and another gospel to teach that Jews or Gentiles need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to get saved or stay saved. It's no surprise when we understand that, that Paul and Barnabas had a lot of disputes with those brethren. Verse two, well, when Paul, therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. They, that's the church in Antioch, determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. Now, because the apostles were still alive other than James, and because they had not yet spread out from Jerusalem, they would later do that, Um, they, church in Antioch, they decided to get input from the apostles and the elders leading Jerusalem. Uh, Romans was not written yet. Galatians was not written yet. Ephesians and Colossians was not written yet. As far as we know, there was actually no New Testament written at that time. The church in Antioch, uh, their mother church uh, was the church in Jerusalem. The apostles had special training and knowledge from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It was logical and it was spiritually minded to settle this decision by going to Jerusalem to the elders and apostles there. Notice this is not a central organization telling a local church what to do. This is a local church reaching out to the apostles and leaders of their mother church at a time when there was no New Testament as of yet. Now these false teachers, these believers, these Jewish believers who came down from Jerusalem to Antioch understand that they were not sent officially by the church. They took it upon themselves. In verse 23 of uh, Acts chapter 15, uh, James is describing them and it says, "And they wrote letters by them after this manner, the apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, forasmuch as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. These Jewish believers from Jerusalem, they took it upon themselves to travel three hundred miles to the church in Antioch, to try to get them to keep the law of Moses to get saved or to stay saved. They were not authorized by the church. Uh, By by the way, understand, uh, this is, uh, if you put perspective on this, there are are members of Bible Baptist Church who say things and try to influence people contrary to what's taught from this pulpit and contrary to what the bulk of the people whom God has sent here believe. It's no surprise that it happens today, and it happened then too. In the first century, uh, there were hot uh, hot topic buttons, just like there are today. The hot topic button in the first century was the place and role of Jewish works. That question, uh, the place and role of Jewish works, both in the life of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. I mean, understand how difficult this issue was at the time. Jesus of Nazareth was a law-keeping Jew. The apostles were law-keeping Jews. James and the other staff, the elders in the church of Jerusalem, were law-keeping Jews. Uh, By and large, when Paul started churches, he started them with Jews and in the synagogue. And so (laughs) they were all law-keeping Jews in those early days for the most part. And so you can imagine how difficult this was. And it was even more difficult. Because living under grace, the Jews in the Church of Jerusalem they still kept the Moses, the law of Moses. Turn up a few pages to chapter 21, and chapter 21 it's actually a couple of uh, more than a decade later than uh, Acts chapter 15. See, we, we have too simplistic of an understanding of, of this issue today, and uh, believers today they don't seem to be aware of the fact that Jewish believers, uh, including the apostles. Living under grace, they kept the biblical Jewish laws still. Look in Acts chapter 21, verse 19. It says, and when they had saluted them, uh, he declared particularly, that's Paul, what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, notice this, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. Uh, It wasn't just the apostles and the leaders and the Jewish Christians in the first church of Jerusalem who were living under grace, who kept the Mosaic law. Listen, Paul was comfortable doing, doing it at times, and he was the person who preached this message of grace to the Gentiles. Look at chapter 21, verse 26. It says, then Paul took the men And the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification, until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. Now that might strike you as a bit unusual if you're a little bit new to paying more careful attention to the scriptures. Listen, even the apostle Paul who who he and Barnabas took the message of salvation by grace through faith, apart from anything to do with the Jews. Understand, he was comfortable when he went back into Jerusalem. uh, He was here gonna offer a blood sacrifice, not to wash his sins away. Christ did that, but as a symbol of what Jesus Christ has done. I mean, understand this. Liberty, unlike how the word is used today, is not always doing less. Paul did more. He had liberty, living under the grace of God, to offer the Jewish sacrifices as a symbol. And by the way, if you read Ezekiel chapter 40 verses f- through chapter 48, you understand that in the kingdom of Christ, uh, once again, those sacrifices are going to be offered as a symbol. Don't misunderstand me. Jesus Christ fulfilled all the religious portions of the law on the cross. It is absolutely unnecessary to offer blood sacrifices, keep holy days, follow the Jewish diet. Uh, Unnecessary. Jesus fulfilled them all. They were all shadows of him and what he did. But the early church in Jerusalem, they still kept them as symbols. Now, these unauthorized Jewish believers were trying to force Jewish culture and Jewish traditions on Gentiles to get saved or stay saved. These were Jewish believers. Now, it may shock you to understand that the New Testament actually has a lot of criticism of believers, 20 of the 27 New Testament books in some place warn either about the bad doctrine or bad behavior of someone who's a believer. Every single New Testament author, including Jesus himself, had warnings about what some believers would say or do or believe. Now, if you go back to chapter 15, the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch, they cared a lot about doctrine, about truth, and they also cared a lot about remaining in one accord. Uh, Sometime a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that and how important it is as a church to be in one accord, and because they valued that, uh, they sought input uh, from the congregation to begin this issue, and it begins in uh, verse five, but there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, said that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Uh, By the way, that's the same procedure we have here. Uh, Whenever you find it in the bulletin, hey, uh, give us some input on whether you like that missionary. That's us as leaders seeking your input. Whenever we have changed our constitution, we have done it at the five-year mark. We did it at the uh, 11-year mark. We may be at this point uh, needing to do that again. We we did that too. Listen, we said, hey, this is our constitution. Do you have any issues with things that are in there? We purposely did that. It's following the New Testament model. And then after they got this input, notice that the leaders, they had a private meeting to further discussion. And Early on in the meeting with the leaders, it was a lively discussion. In verse 7 of chapter uh, 15, it says, And when there had been much disputing, uh, the, 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 it started off with a lot of discussion. And though Peter was no longer the pastor in Jerusalem, he was the leading apostle. He was the one chosen by Christ to take the gospel to the Gentiles first. And he agreed with what Paul and Bartimus had taught, and so listen to what he has to say, beginning in the middle of verse seven, Peter rose up and said unto them, "'Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago "'God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth "'should hear the word of the gospel and believe. "'And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, "'giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. "'And he put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. By the way, notice before we go on, the Jews and Gentiles, according to Peter, were purified their hearts by faith. Not by the law, not by circumcision. Remember, that's the issue. Verse 10, now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, That's Jews, even as they. Notice again, Peter makes it very clear. The Jews and the Gentiles, they were not saved by circumcision. They were not saved by keeping the law. The Jews and the Gentiles, they were saved by grace through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Peter had basically shut down the conversation by those remarks, Uh, Paul and Barnabas spoke about the great miracles that God had done through them. Remember, miracles at that time uh, were signs to confirm the word and the message. And that's what happens in verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silence. They gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among them, uh, among the Gentiles by them. And those miracles, they were Paul and Barnabas saying to everyone, listen, God confirmed this message. That it is not the Jewish law that saves, it is not circumcision, it is not holy days, it is not the Sabbath, it is grace through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, as shocking as it is to those who have uh, degraded church leadership to elder leadership, their pastor is going to settle the issue. Verse 13, and after they had held their peace, James answered, Saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as is written. And now he's going to quote Amos as a basis for his decision. Verse 19 Wherefore, my sentence is think about that phrase. There was congregational input. There was a meeting of the leaders that was, included the apostles, the elders that would be the, the staff, so to speak, of the church of Jerusalem. It was thousands of people. They, they had a large staff of uh, spiritual leaders. And now James, who's leading the church, he says in verse 19, he says, my sentence is that we trouble not them, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them, that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. See, (laughs) though some in the congregation likely didn't agree, The pastor, the apostles, the staff, and the church as a body made it clear that Gentiles were not saved, nor were they kept saved by keeping Jewish laws. By the way, they also made it clear that they were not supposed to use their liberty To offend Jewish believers. That's why it says to stay away from blood and things that are strangled. I mean, Jews then, I mean, today they're called kosher laws. I don't know what they were called at that time, but it was the same thing. There were rules by which Jews ate their food. And part of this decision is, listen, that guy or those people that came and said, you have to do Jewish things to get saved or keep the law of Moses to stay saved. We didn't send them. That's not right. But understand this, guys, I want you to use your liberty not to offend the Jewish brethren, and I don't want you to just jam your liberty to eat whatever you want down their throat. Now, we don't like that. I mean, modern-day liberty has literally degraded to be, well, you know, to do as little as possible, I have liberty under grace to do almost nothing. That has nothing to do with biblical liberty. Biblical liberty really is you and I being free in Christ to follow the Holy Spirit to do more than the minimum letter of the law. By the way, that's from what I understand, that's what love does. Love doesn't do as little as it can do. And that's really the message there. (laughs) Legalism in the Bible is taking something distinctly Jewish and make it a requirement to get saved or stay saved. If it's in the New Testament and it's legalism, it has something to do with the Sabbath, Jewish diet, holy days, or circumcision. By the way, that's what Paul and Barnabas were combating in the church in Antioch when they went to Jerusalem. That was what Paul was combating when he wrote the letter to the region of Galatia. That's what Paul was combating when he wrote the letter to to the Colossian believers in the city of Colossae in chapter two. Biblical legalism has nothing to do with wearing skirts instead of pants. It has nothing to do with wearing a tie instead of skinny jeans when you preach. It has nothing to do with whether I believe a King James Bible or a modern translation. And when someone calls someone else a legalist, it has the appearance of biblical authority, but that is just not the case unless something Jewish is involved or it is someone making a requirement to get saved or stay saved. To my knowledge, biblical legalism is adding something distinctly Jewish to either get saved or stay saved. Now, in America today, I am not aware of anyone making anything distinctly Jewish essential. That was a problem in the first century. But there are people adding things to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is legalism. It is biblical legalism to require any of the Catholic sacraments to get saved, that is legalism, and also heresy, it is biblical legalism to require baptism by immersion, to get saved, that's legalism, and a false gospel, it is biblical legalism to require good works, or faithfulness to stay saved, that's legalism, and a false doctrine, It is biblical legalism to tell people they must join the church and do good works to get saved or stay saved. And listen, that's false doctrine. And you and I, we need to stand up against and fight against true legalism wherever it tries to creep into the Lord's church or our home. And if you turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 2, what I would like to do is to make some practical applications and observations about biblical legalism. Sometimes when you come here, my target's your heart. Other times when you come here, my target's your brain. Uh, We're supposed to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And so, part of loving God with our mind is to think biblically and rightly about the issues of life. And so, here's the first thing tonight. Number one, it is not biblical legalism to have a different practical application of a biblical command. It is not biblical legalism to have a different practical application of a biblical command. Now, I'm just, I picked one issue. I mean, you could pick, you could illustrate this with 15 different issues. I just picked one because this is a common uh, one that people throw that word around uh, for. First Timothy chapter uh, two says in verse eight, Paul says here, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness, that's like a bashfulness, and sobriety, that's clear thinking. Not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Among other things here, Paul, as the Spirit inspires him, he commanded women to dress modestly. We won't take the time to look there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse 14, Paul taught the Corinthian believers, he says, it is a shame, quote, for a man to have long hair, quote. By the way, anybody who says that God doesn't care about our appearance, they didn't get that from the Bible. Our appearance is a part of our Christian testimony, and here the Holy Spirit commands modesty. It's kind of an interesting thing when you think about what's going on today. Uh, If you go up to chapter 5, there's a good example of what most all of them, uh, I will call uh, lukewarm American Christianity, they would call legalism. And, And Paul is going to tell the Timothy what kind of uh, restrictions, what kind of lines to draw for charity to widows. And as we read this, uh, put this in today's term, and I just want to say, Almost everyone who throws this word around carelessly, they would call Paul a legalist. First Timothy chapter five verse nine says, "Let not a widow be taken into the number under six score, uh, three score years old, having been the wife of one man." Legalist. Verse ten, well reported of for good works if she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work, but the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, in other words, they're mad at the church for not giving them money, they'll marry. Listen, if that is not what modern-day Christianity would call legalism, I don't know what is. I mean, listen, he put an age limit on it. You know, maybe the word is being used completely inappropriately. Charity to widows isn't a problem today. But calling people a legalist related to outward appearance is a problem. See, the problem is twofold. Some people wrongly say that the outward appearance of a Christian doesn't matter. That's not true. It's always interesting to me, uh, in uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, where God says uh, about uh, Eliab to Samuel, look not on his uh, outward appearance, uh, you know, God looks uh, on his heart. You, you know that verse. Five verses later, God describes the outward appearance of, Jace, uh, of David. He's ruddy, he's of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look to. I, I, I mean, listen, the, the teaching of that verse is, listen, you don't pick leaders by outward appearance. You pick them by what's in their heart. That, that's the message. The first problem is people wrongly say outward appearance doesn't matter. And the second problem for those of us who want to obey God in this is God doesn't define what long is for a man's hair. And he doesn't define what modest is for a woman's apparel. Everyone who recognizes recognizes these to be Bible commands has drawn arbitrary lines for what is long on a hair of a man and what is modest. And it is our fallen nature that wants us to have everybody around us be just like we are. It is the job of every Christian, every family, and every church to draw arbitrary lines for these and other biblical commandments. In a few weeks, we'll, actually I'm going to spend several weeks talking about biblical leadership and biblical following, um, but tonight, so I, all I want to say is this, most people have no idea where their own authority stops and starts, and it causes problems. Listen, no one has the right to say, uh, God doesn't care if you live a holy life. He's commanded us to be holy, and we draw arbitrary lines as to what that means. No one has the right to say, God doesn't care if we separate from those who teach false doctrine. In Romans, he commanded us to separate from those, from those who teach things contrary to what we've learned. No one has the right to say, God doesn't care if we assemble faithfully. God has said not to forsake assemblage. No one has a right to say God doesn't care if we serve Christ heartily or casually. He's already commanded that we do what we do heartily as unto the Lord. Listen, no one has a right to say God doesn't care how a Christian looks on the outside, though of course, of course, God is most interested in our heart. But he does also care about our appearance, or he wouldn't say anything about it. For instance, as I said earlier, we're called legalists for having that arbitrary line of what a man wears when he serves and what a woman wears. But everyone who would call us a legalist are a legalist by their own definition. They also have an arbitrary line. Now, they might feel like it's okay for a woman to wear pants when she sings and for a man to wear jeans, but I guarantee you it's not okay for the man to wear a Speedo and the woman to wear a shorty shirt. No thank you. I'm just saying, listen, having an arbitrary line to keep a Bible command, that is not legalism. Everybody has them. And people tend to call anyone with a higher arbitrary line a legalist. It's just not right it is not biblical legalism to have an arbitrary standard unless you make that standard a requirement to get saved or stay saved. You and I, if you're a believer, we have liberty to do more than the minimum. I have the liberty to dress up for church. I actually have the liberty to give 12% instead of 10. I have the liberty to read more than a verse a day in a daily devotional. Again, if I understand anything about love whatsoever, love is not doing as little as you can do. Listen, if what we really do is from a heart that's filled with love for the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not looking for the minimum. We're looking for, okay, Lord, what do you want most? Honestly, it bothers me that much of modern Christianity acts like there are no biblical commands while we live under grace. Grace teaches us that we should deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. If you take notes, write down uh, Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. It says that grace teaches us that. No one has the right to say that grace doesn't teach us to live soberly and righteously and godly, but we do have liberty and grace to draw those lines in our own sphere of authority. And I just grow weary of people who just throw grace around as an excuse to do whatever they want. It is a very basic New Testament truth that Jesus required more under grace than any Old Testament law required of a Jew. I mean, read the read the Sermon on the Mount. Jimmy, mean, Jesus raised the command not to kill, to not hate. Jesus raised the command not to commit adultery to not looking with lust. Hey, listen, if what is grace to you and what is liberty to you is for you to do whatever you want, there's something wrong with that. Right. I blame spiritual leaders. Uh, they very often don't teach the Bible commands. By the way, I also blame people in pews and chairs. They're not hungry spiritually. They're satisfied with milk and ease. It bothers me when people call me a legalist. It bothers me when people call you a legalist. Listen, they don't know me. They don't know you. Hey, listen, we have plenty of flaws as a church and as the people of God. we got plenty of them, but I, I just want to simply say publicly, literally some of the best people anywhere are sitting in this room. Listen, there's a lot of us. We, we take very seriously trying to apply the commandments of God from our heart. And it's not biblical legalism to have a different practical application of a Bible command. And though what people call legalism certainly isn't biblical legalism, there is something at the root of these barbs when people throw that word around with a false appearance of biblical authority. Go, lastly, tonight in your Bible to Romans 14. And I know I have a lot of material tonight, but to be honest with you, I just didn't want to turn it into two messages. I wanted to just get her done and get out. Here's number two. We need to be careful we don't make our applications of Bible commands equal to the Bible commands. We need to make sure we don't make our applications of Bible commands equal to the Bible command. Remember, the Bible command, be modest. Uh, The Bible command, a long hair. The the Bible command, read your Bible. You you know, the Bible command, pray. Uh, Listen, there are Bible commands behind all those things. And then those with a heart for God and a heart to obey, you, you know, we begin to apply those things. We make arbitrary places where we make those applications and we need to make sure we don't make our applications equal to the command. And if there's a place in the Bible where this is directly discussed, it's here. Romans chapter 14, verse one, says him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. By the way, before we go on, understand that some people are weaker in the faith than others. By the way, Paul judged that some people were weaker in the faith. He says, listen, receive them, but not to doubtful disputations. Receive them, but you know, if it's a controversial thing, if it's something that requires more maturity and more knowledge to to, to really understand, don't receive them for those things. I I didn't write it, I'm just teaching what's written. Verse two, says, for one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Or herbs, for those who are trying to make me always pronounce my H's. (laughs) Uh, So the weaker position on food is to have a vegetarian diet. The New Testament, beginning with the vision that Peter got of the sheet three times, God cleansed all the foods that were unclean in, in the Old Testament. And Paul not only judged what, some people were weak. He judges which position is strong and which position is, is weak. Listen, it is not equal to eat everything or to be on a vegetarian diet. I've heard people say, well, Adam and Eve uh, didn't eat meat, therefore I'm not eating meat. Listen, you may go, go ahead, be a vegetarian, but don't blame the Bible. That is a weaker position if you do that for spiritual reasons. Verse three says, let not, him that eateth, in other words, you're the person who has everything clean, uh, despise him that eateth not. If you're in a strong position, uh, don't hate him who's eating not, who's in the weaker position. And let not him which eateth not, you're in the weaker position, don't judge him that eateth, for God hath uh, received him. But, boy, isn't that just a real picture of, of what goes on? The person in the stronger position hates the one who is lax in their view. And the person who is in the weaker position, who has the more lax position, they harshly judge. They call them legalists. They call them Pharisee. The person who has the stronger position. By the way, that, that's, that's just what it says. In verse 4, he says, who art thou that judgest another man's servant?" To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to hold him up. See, Paul's point is, listen, I'm pointing out, I'm judging what's right and the strong position versus a weaker position. But when it comes to condemning them, I leave that all up to God. That's what he's teaching. See, the idea is that biblical commands should be clear. But the application of those commands, though some are weaker and others are stronger, that should be something we are supposed to be charitable about rather than contentious. You and I should not be bothered by those who differ on biblical applications only by those who ignore biblical commands. I'm not bothered tonight by some church who's trying to obey the Bible commands, who defines those things differently than I am. It doesn't bother me at all. It shouldn't bother you. Honestly, over the years, I have changed. Uh, I have not changed what I believed about these biblical commands. In areas of doubtful disposition, they're commands. Over the years, quite frankly, I've raised some lines. That's what you're supposed to do when you grow in grace. And quite frankly, uh, God has taught me that I need to be more gracious with people who draw them differently than me. I'm not supposed to despise, what it teaches, someone who's more lax in how they handle these things than I am. We are supposed to stay in the sphere of authority where God has placed us. If you don't know the Bible commands and principles that apply, you need to learn them. And then we as believers, we need to seek the mind and the leadership of the Spirit of God to apply them with our testimony and our love for Christ in mind. Someone asked, uh, because I'm not a Facebook person, but I I threw on Facebook uh, something about biblical legalism because I purposely, I, I wanted to hear what those who differ, I wanted to hear what they had to say. By the way, truth is nothing to fear from honest investigation. Wanted to hear what they had to say. And and by the way, none of them had, had any biblical refutation for what I've told you tonight. There's a good reason for that. It's in the Bible. But they did bring up a good question. If it's not legalism, then what should I call it? And the answer, frankly, depends on what it is. I hope you understand that if it is adding anything to what it takes to get saved or stay saved, uh, that's biblical legalism, should be clearly condemned. If it is someone having a higher line than you or I do on a Bible command, uh, you know what? I hope it's obvious at this point, that's not legalism. Everybody who believes the Bible command has a line and a standard they've drawn. So, Brother Wally, what, what should I call it if it's not legalism? You know, that's up to you. I mean, frankly, I just don't use the word. You know, sometimes it's immaturity. Sometimes it's pride. Sometimes it's, frankly, it's just someone who's newer in the faith or hasn't really, God hasn't brought that area of their life under his spirit's instruction yet. Have you ever thought someone who has a higher standard, have you ever thought maybe they've been called by God? to have that higher line drawn to motivate the rest of us to think about it. Why, why if someone is a higher standard than you, why, why are they a Pharisee? Why are they a legal? Why, why, why can't God have just moved them to something higher? Listen, every individual Christian, every family, every church, every school has arbitrary lines. And when you and I are humble and knowledgeable, people that have different lines, it doesn't bother us at all. We understand they get to do that. But no one has the right to ignore or pretend there are no biblical commands for us living under grace. You know, I thought about myself in light of all this. And I hope you think about yourself too. You know, I think it's pretty easy when we feel like we've grown in knowledge and grown some in our life to just like Romans 14 says, have some despite for someone else's laxity. That's probably the easy error of people in this church. And I think it's very easy for people on the other end of the spectrum. In our culture, there's lots of them who just harshly judge and throw legalists and Pharisee and everything else around when they have no idea what they're talking about. But I will say this, there is always good reason to walk humbly with wherever we've personally drawn these lines and to be charitable to those who handle them differently. Amen? If you quietly stand.